Warning! Today's escape pod contains strong themes of violence, some strong language, and some sexual content, and may be prohibited in the United Kingdom. We recommend you listen anyway if you're an adult. Escape pod 120 August 23rd, 2007 Today's story, The Sundial Brigade, by James DeMarco Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have a highly charged piece for you today by James Tremarco, and I want to talk for a minute about where this week's story came from. Last year, in the wake of the prior year's London Underground bombings, the UK passed a law known as the Terrorism Act of 2006. Now, in a lot of ways, this bill was less wide-reaching than our own Homeland Security Act. It broadened the reach of search warrants and extended the detention of terrorist suspects. But it's the first part of the act that really drew notice. It makes it illegal in the UK to publish statements that could be taken as, quote, direct or indirect encouragement or other inducement of terrorist acts. The indirect part of that includes any statement which, quote, glorifies the commission or preparation of such acts in the past, future, or generally. And it's explicitly irrelevant whether the published statement actually leads to any sort of terrorist activity or not. Maximum penalty is seven years imprisonment. So, do you get that? In the UK, you can't say anything that could be indirectly construed as encouraging anyone else to take up arms today. This has a lot of implications for teaching history. It was brought up in debate that English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh history are full of acts that could be described as terrorist that led to the current government, and also for any sort of fiction. We're a speculative fiction market, that's what you come to Escape Pod for, and you can't have speculative fiction if people are not allowed to speculate. One response to this legislation was a science fiction anthology, published in February this year, called Glorifying Terrorism. It was edited by Farah Mendelssohn and published by Rackstraw Press. It's a protest anthology, if the title doesn't make that clear, deliberately intended to be illegal under the Terrorism Act. There are stories from Ken McLeod, Charlie Strauss, Joe Walton, and Rachel Swirsky, who's editing our upcoming fantasy podcast. The book is unfortunately sold out at the moment, but I'll link to it anyway, and perhaps we'll see a reprint or an electronic edition. So those are the facts. I started to close this intro with my own opinions on terrorism and free speech, but, you know, it really doesn't matter. You having access to information and speech so you can form your own opinions, that's what matters. And if you can't say what you think, say it anyway. Our story this week is The Sundial Brigade by James Tremarco. We've heard Mr. Tremarco here before with his story, How Lonesome a Life Without Nerve Gas. He lives in New York City, and his writing has appeared in Afterburn SF, Strange Horizons, the nonfiction book The Selling of 9-11, and Vanity Fair, where he finished third in this year's essay contest. This story first appeared in the anthology Glorifying Terrorism, published this year from Rackstraw Press. The story is read for us by Grey Dancer, host of the world's foremost BDSM podcast, The Ropecast. Gray does bondage performances and demonstrations nationally, and soon to be internationally, and you can check out his excellent podcast and blog at graydancer.com. So please have your authorizations ready before listening. It's story time. The Sundial Brigade by James Tremarco Antonio Buccini saw the tall street vendor every day in the plaza beside the Uffizi Gallery. He was a dark-skinned black man, 
dressed in sheer purple robes with a white dashiki. On his table, blue-gray incense fumes snaked around elongated wooden masks, some of them with nails hammered in for hair or a slice of copper pipe glued on for a mouth. African masks, statues, incense, the vendor called, and a crowd of Turanians rushed up to fondle his wares. Antonio shouldered past them, his sweaty arms sliding on their raspy yellow robes. He turned and watched them for a moment. In a way, they weren't so different from the tourists that Italy had always attracted. People of every size, color, and shape walked among them. Some dressed in bulky yellow subspace robes that hummed as they cooled the air around them. Others, more willing to brave the summer heat, dressed like ordinary Italians. Antonio's girlfriend, Elona, said she told them apart by the scars on their hands where the subspace key chips were implanted. But Antonio didn't need to look for any scars. A certain softness around the eyes and a peculiar slump to the back gave them away every time. Antonio turned onto a side street and found his favorite butcher shop. The air inside was cooler and the sweat on his face became a splash of cold. He put his hands on the counter and felt his stomach twist at the sight of juicy ham hocks, fat sausages, ground beef. A loud clap made him jump. Giovanni the butcher glared at him from across the counter, hairy forearms crossed over his blood-stained apron. Why do you do it? Giovanni said. Why come and look when you know you can't pay? Well, I... You haven't found a job, have you? Antonio shook his head. Ay, 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 Giovanni moaned. It's been how many years since you've had work? I'd make you sweep the shop, but you can't even use the broom. Why do you do it? You know why. Giovanni's face went still. He gestured with his head to a corner of the shop. Two men sat at a table, sipping cappuccinos and whispering in their language. The ventilation pumps in their coarse yellow robes purred and thrummed. Antonio nodded then raised his eyebrows. It's the economy. I've been waiting on the waiting list at the employment agency for years. The secretary says, you lazy bum, I should throw you out in the street. Antonio shrugged his shoulders. I'd like two kilos of salted ham, four links of soprasata, very dry if you please, and a kilo of ground beef. Put it on my tab. Giovanni picked up a ham and heaved it onto the slicer, grumbling. The Turanians turned to watch him. Their soft skin, the color of coffee with milk, flushed and reddened. One of them spoke a command phrase, and a silvery subcam materialized over his right palm. The pieces corkscrewed out of the air and sucked together with a hissing sound like water on a hot pan. Maladizione. Giovanni said, we're amusing them. The man gave another command, and a subgun made from what looked like shiny red plastic appeared in his other hand. He didn't point it at anyone, but Antonio knew what it meant. Have you finished wrapping that meat? I'd like a package of condoms, please, extra thin. That's three euro, Antonio. Umberto glared down from his kiosk on the Ponte Vecchio. All around him gleamed a constellation of items ranging from the cheap to the tacky. Packages of chips clipped to an old length of extension cord. Postcards with pictures of the Uffizi, the Duomo, and the Ponte Vecchio itself. Antonio had heard rumors that Umberto could get other things, too. 
things much harder to find. Could you put it on my tab? I'd like to smack you, ragazzo, Umberto said, his lips curling below the brush of his white mustache. Is there anyone in Florence you don't owe your hide to? It's not for lack of looking I don't have a job, Antonio said. It's the damn EU makes it impossible. Right, Umberto said, letting a sarcastic growl into his voice, which, like most people of his advanced age, carried an oddly clipped accent from that other language he had spoken all his life. It's not fair, Umberto went on. I have to work while you do nothing all day. Antonio laid his arms over his friend's countertop and smiled sweetly. Do you really think begging for scraps is my idea of the perfect life? I'm no idiot. I went to engineering school. Did you know they trained me in their language when they first showed up here? They wanted me to work for them. That was before they figured out what they really wanted. They didn't want us to be able to understand them, that's for sure, Umberto said. He placed a condom wrapped in a shiny plastic on the counter. As Antonio took it, he saw the rage in his friend's eyes. He'd heard people gripe about the situation a thousand times, but he'd never seen anyone look so close to the edge. Antonio rang the bell to the little apartment he shared with his mother and waited for her to let him in. He'd given his key to Elona to borrow. Even in the miserable refugee camp where he'd lived in the flood years, a vein scanner on the door had screened guests automatically. No one had to carry keys. His mother opened the door with a cigarette dangling from her lips. Her arms swung with hanging fat as she went back to the table where Elona sat in a wicker chair. Oh, filio mio, she said. Did you bring us some meat? Of course, he said, glancing at the faces of several Turanian children in the window. They pointed and laughed at his mother. Then a hand slapped their faces. A mother herself, perhaps. She said something Antonio couldn't hear, and the children watched more somberly. Don't look at them, Elona said, making the quick taking-a-picture gesture that she used when talking about the Turanians. I've been trying all night to forget them. She raised a cup of wine to show him exactly how she'd been doing that. How did you get the wine? I don't ask you how you get the meat, do I? Just sit down and have a glass. You didn't bring those technology magazines I asked for, did you? said his mother. Antonio sipped the wine Ilona had poured for him. Those magazines are forbidden. They're not true to period. I don't care about that, she said, and don't quote their words to me, true to period. What's wrong with 2310? Do you want them to assign you every bad habit in the period because you can't follow the rules? Antonio said, his voice rising. You didn't used to smoke. You didn't used to eat too much. You didn't used to drink. What vice will they give you next? Elona clucked her tongue. Go easy on her, Tony. How would you have coped if you'd been older when they came? She already had a good career. She was telling me all about the programming she wrote for the cars that drove themselves. Antonio took another draft of wine and leaned back in his chair. He felt like taking off his shirt and slouching in front of the TV with the next glass. Funny how easy it was to slip into the very stereotypes the Turanians were dying to see. After a dinner of pasta e fioli with broccoli rabe and a cup of gelato for dessert, his mother went to bed. Antonio listened to the splash and clatter of Elona doing the dishes. 
He would have helped her, but that wouldn't have been true to period. When she finally finished, he pulled her close and kissed her. Her mouth had a slightly acid taste that he noticed when she was tired or frustrated, but he didn't care. He half led her, half carried her to the couch, where he kissed her some more and pulled her shirt off. Elona, who was Albanian, had whiter breasts than he'd ever seen on an Italian girl. She had blue eyes, too, but it was those white shoulders and breasts that made him want to devour her, protect her, stay with her. He reached into his back pocket for the condom he'd gotten from Umberto. No, Elona said. What? You heard me. They're watching. They were watching last time. Sure they were, she sung, wiggling out from underneath him and slipping back into her shirt. And do you know what my curator told me? She said, Albanian women in the 21st century didn't have sex before marriage. What? But the streets were full of... I mean, prostitutes from Albania. Everybody knows. I guess that's just not what it says in their research, thankfully. A rasping sound came from the window, and Antonio saw it slide open. A Turanian man climbed in and nodded at them. Features from Europe and Africa and Asia mixed together in a smooth, round face. His subspace rope thrummed faintly. Buonasera, he said. My name is Mado. Sorry to bother you, but for the past ten minutes you've been talking about nothing but our regulations. That's not what we need to see. You've got plenty in your real lives to talk about. The Turanian smiled. Like most of his people, something about his smile struck Antonio wrong. His face might have seemed attractive on the TV, but his skin was as smooth as a stick of butter. When someone like Giovanni or Umberto smiled, it was the accumulated troubles Antonio saw there that made him smile back. He didn't feel that with this man. You can't blame us, Elona said, pulling her shirt down to cover her belly. We can't even remember what our lives were like. Then let me remind you, Mato said, his chest puffing out self-righteously. Your world was flooded. Hundreds of millions of refugees crowded the few dry cities. The wars over fresh water got uglier each year. It was just what we were afraid of when we left. We returned from Mars to find you living like animals. That's not true, Antonio said. My mother was programming advanced AI navigational systems. Life was getting better. Mato's smile disappeared. Water hissed on a hot pan, and a shiny red gun materialized in his hand. His face shivered as if he might cry. You will never know what it was like, he said, a hundred and eighty-five years without a blue sky, without the ocean, without sunlight, only machines, until we forgot everything that made us human. We rescued your world. All we want in return is to know where we came from, to know who we are. Antonio stared at the subgun. They did not destroy the body like ordinary guns. Instead, they whisked it into subspace, the alternate universe the Turanians had discovered and harnessed while living on Mars. Although no one knew for sure where the people who got shot ended up, most believed it was a random point in the middle of outer space. All right, Ilona said. We'll, we'll do what we can. Grazie, said Mato. 
he climbed to the window and into the gentle darkness of the night. Not long after that, Antonio had an appointment with his curator, Yoshi, at the Department of Human Heritage. Antonio explained a situation in the Turanian language. So you're unsatisfied with your role as a beggar, Yoshi said. That's hardly surprising. The unemployed of the early 21st century were also unhappy. Your emotions are true to period, that's all. But it's all wrong, Antonio insisted. I did well in school. I, I studied to be an engineer. If this was the real Italy, someone like me wouldn't end up like this. Yoshi's mouth curved into the sterile non-smile of a bureaucrat with no time for sympathy. What's more, Antonio said, Elona won't marry unless I have a job. Her curator has forbidden it. Yoshi stared at his desk. He looked as if he was concentrating on a difficult mathematical problem. I did not expect to be convinced by you, but it's true that most Italians were married by your age, so I would be disrupting truth to period if I kept you from marriage by denying you a job. I'm sure I can find someone else to fill your role. Antonio said a tiny prayer for that person, whomever he might be. I have an opening for a guard in the Uffizi, said Yoshi. I could get you started there in a few weeks. Uh, but I, I studied electrical engineering. Can't you find something in my field? It'll be fine, said Yoshi. All the good work is in museums now. Antonio and Elona walked along the narrow streets of their neighborhood. The tawny brown walls of the houses glowed brightly in the afternoon sun. All of this had been destroyed during the flood years, but Turanian construction bots had restored it to period true. Several times Antonio tried to take Elona's hand, but she pulled it away every time. What's wrong with you? he demanded. Are we alone now? she asked. I've got something to tell you. Antonio glanced around the area. He noticed the silvery glow of a subcam behind the shutters of a nearby house. Its microphone would catch everything said on the block, and who knew how many more were around. I saw my curator today, Elona said. He told me a funny joke. She made the picture-taking gesture and nodded her head at the subcam. Three women are in school to be teachers. One is American, one is Italian, one is Albanian. So they come into the school, and the principal tells them to teach him something. The American goes up to the board and writes, 2 plus 2 equals 4. So the principal says, all Americans know how to do is make money. Antonio laughed. Then the Italian comes in. She starts to write something on the board, but she gets hungry and orders some pasta. The principal says, all Italians know how to do is eat pasta. Hey, Antonio said. Last... In comes the Albanian. She sits on the desk and hikes up her skirt. The principal gets out a roll of bills, and he says, he says, all Albanians know how to do is... She couldn't finish. Antonio put his arms around her, but she pushed him off. He'd known her before the Turanians had come, when she'd worked long hours as a maid so that she'd never have to degrade herself. In the 24th century, being Albanian had been the least of her problems. But things had changed. The joke is so awful, she sobbed. They don't know anything about us. They turned the corner into a larger road. Up ahead, Antonio could see some kind of construction site. Cranes and bulldozers moved metal beams around. 
Elona pulled him deeper into the deafening noise. They won't be able to hear us over that racket, Elona said. Listen, I, I know some people who are forming a group. They're going to give it back to the Turanians right where it hurts. I want to join too. But Elona, he said, they could send us all into subspace with a couple of bombs. We'll never win. The brightness in her eyes dulled. She took his hand and started crying again. I say we get out of here, he said. We'll escape from the museum city and go someplace like Milan. Life is normal there, I hear. The, the Turanians and the Italians live together as one people. But how will we get past the guard bots at the gates? They shoot on sight. I know someone with connections. We'll get a couple of scrambler suits and then we can slip right past them. Antonio put his index finger into the glass tube, and a wave of heat moved across it as the machine scanned his vein structure. A pale Turanian named Tipu, whose wide back slumped like the side of a hill, typed into a computer at the desk. You are all set, Tipu said. You're cleared for security inside the Uffizi. You're to be stationed in the Caravaggio room. Some of the visitors might try to touch the paintings. Just tell them to back up. And remember to speak only 21st century Italian. You're here to keep the place period true. What if they don't listen to me? We can't have oily fingers touching the precious works. Keep this neuro pistol on your belt. It will paralyze the central nervous system of anyone who can't control themselves. Call me if you ever have to use it. Tipu had him change into the white shirt and black slacks that were the uniform of the Uffizi guards, and then brought him up to the Caravaggio room and left him there. The museum opened shortly, and from that moment on, the gallery was packed to the walls with Turanians. Antonio considered himself a fan of great painting, but he'd never seen anything quite like the way these people stared into the works, their eyes gaping, their lips quivering, their hands clutching at their robes. He watched two young girls in Italian clothes staring for what seemed like hours at Caravaggio's painting of Bacchus. See how he's got those fig leaves in his hair? said one. I know, it's beautiful. It makes me wonder why we keep them in this dirty, ugly 21st century. There are museum cities all over America and Asia from that period, and we have only two in all of Italy. It's true, said her friend. While she looked young, her eyes and cheeks sagged dramatically with an exhausted pout. At first, everyone wanted the 21st century because that was what their great-great-grandparents remembered. But people are getting bored with the highways and taxicabs, and the immigration conditions are hard to replicate. It won't be long before we have the votes we need. Then we'll feel as human as the man in this painting all the time. Scusi, Antonio said. You are too close to the painting. The girls nodded blankly and backed up, their eyes still locked on the pleasures promised by the curves of Bacchus's soft white body, his dark eyes twinkling beneath his fig-leaf crown as he curled his fingers around the neck of an elegant silver wine glass. As he left the building after work, Antonio nearly tripped over an old beggar who sat cross-legged on the ground in front of a small wooden bowl, whimpering and rocking back and forth. Antonio was about to curse him when he noticed who he was. Umberto! What are you doing here? Umberto looked up at him through his stiff white eyebrows. 
His lips pulled back from his teeth in an expression that mixed anguish, rage, and sorrow in equal portions. They got me selling a three-dimensional vidcam, he said. I lost my kiosk for selling off-period tech. Curator said he had an opening for a beggar, and so here I am. I, I'm sorry, Antonio said. It's too bad that you're not at the kiosk anymore, because I could actually pay you now. I still owe you some money from before. Umberto rocked forward, his face still locked in that furious expression. Listen, Antonio said. Me and Elona would like to go for a walk, a long walk, you understand? We'd like something that would help us blend in. Take a long walk up my ass. Umberto, I'm serious. I'll, I'll pay you well. Hmm, I'm not sure. Come back and check with me next week. Oh, thank you, he said. Thank you so much. He said goodbye to Umberto and turned the corner to visit Giovanni's butcher shop. How different it felt to see a friend and not have to beg from him. He walked into the shop and spun on his heels. Buongiorno, Giovanni, he said. I have good news for you. Soon I'll be able to start paying you back. I'll give you a hundred euro as a first installment. What do you say to that? Giovanni's broad face pinched into wrinkles at the corner of his eyes. I would say congratulations, Tony, but there's something you need to know first. Cold fear washed over Antonio. My mother? Another vice? No. Well, what then? Elona was arrested by the police today. I'm not sure of the nature of the crime, but it happened on the street. I hear she's being held in the... Giovanni kept speaking, but Antonio did not hear. He felt as if he'd been punched in the guts by the cold double arms of a security bot. He pulled out a chair, tried to sit in it, fell. Giovanni came and picked him up off the tiled floor. Cameras? Antonio gasped, peering into the corners. Are there cameras in here? No, said Giovanni, but Antonio didn't believe him. Tears were running down his face. He couldn't bear to be under their gaze. How could they do this to him? How could they take her away just as he'd been preparing an escape? They'd let him have his joy for an hour or two and then made it disappear, just as surely as if they had shot it with a sub-gun. He dashed outside and headed across the square to the corner where he kept his Vespa. On the way, he passed the tall black vendor who sold masks outside the Uffizi. The man was loading all the unsold masks into a frayed burlap sack. He turned his smooth face towards Antonio and gave a crisp nod. What is it? Antonio said. You don't look happy, said the vendor, speaking Italian with a strange accent Antonio couldn't place. You walk as if you carry your own gravestone on your back. That's not far from the truth. Why don't you come with me then? My name is Yusuf. I'd like to show you something. I'm not coming with anybody. But even as he said this, he was taking his first steps behind Yusuf's swirling purple robes. It felt good to follow someone, instead of having to decide for himself where to go. They crossed the Ponte Vecchio and headed into the southern quarter, called the Oltrarno. They wandered through narrow streets where the evening sun threw diagonal shadows across the buildings in pastel shades of umber, lavender, and orange. Then Yusuf found a rusty security gate over a garage. He opened the padlock with a key, lifted the gate, and put his sack of masks inside.
Come in, he said. Antonio obeyed. Yusuf shut the gate behind him, then crouched down on the floor. Underneath a piece of moldy plywood was a long tunnel leading down. It must have been part of the old sewer system, thought Antonio, but it was dry and led down towards a flickering light below. Antonio's feet hit a concrete floor. He looked around and saw tables where people sat laughing and talking. Some voices spoke in Turanian, others in a clipped dialect that only after a moment did he recognize as 24th century Italian. It was the language of his youth, but it had been so long that he only understood half the words. What is this place? A secret, said Yusuf. Hundreds of years ago it was used to plot against the royal families. Today it's back to a similar purpose. Tell me your name. Antonio Buccini, why have you brought me here? Don't you know? This is a place for the ones who don't like living in a museum. I thought you looked like one of us. That's crazy, Antonio said. Are you? I don't know. My girlfriend, they threw her in jail. I can't think straight. You sound like one of us. You look like one of us. I think you are one of us. I don't even know who us is. Let me tell you. I used to be a lawyer in Akragana. Then the Turanians came and turned back the clock on us to the 17th century Ashanti Empire. A rival tribesman sold me to a Portuguese trader who brought me here in a galleon. I had to laugh when I found myself not only a thousand miles away, but four hundred years in the future. And two hundred years in the past, Antonio said. Yusuf laughed, a deep sound that echoed in the underground chamber. From the true date of 2310, yes. We call our group the Sundial Brigade, because anyone who observes the movement of the sun cannot deny the passing of time. Join us. I don't want to hurt anyone. Yusuf's smooth face, gnarled, turned ugly. We need you, Buccini. It used to be that a people was bound to suffer if there was oil under their land. These days it's the same with ancient ruins. They'll take you back to the 15th century, don't you see that? What if they prefer Giotto to Caravaggio? You could find yourself in 1285 with no running water, living on gruel. I told you I'm not the right man for the job. Buccini, we need someone inside the Uffizi. We need you. No, Antonio said. Lashing out of them is not going to solve this. Now, I've asked my friend for two suits of scrambler camouflage. I'm going to wait until Elona gets out, and then we're leaving. For a long time, Yosef said nothing. The whites of his eyes blazed in his dark, sweaty face. He spat on the ground, his phlegm landing just centimeters from Antonio's shoe. Get out of here, he said. That night, his mother was full of talk. I'm a software programmer, she said, putting a chunk of veal into her mouth. I specialize in AI automobiles. Mother, please. They will hear, you say. Let them hear. First, they told me what to do. I said no, and they made me fat. But still, I would not obey, so they made me drink. She tipped her glass back, drained it, and tossed it at the window. The Turanian children scattered away. The glass bounced harmlessly off the window and then shattered on the floor. 
Still, I said no, Mother went on, so they made me smoke. Now they've taken Elona. What else can they do to me? I don't know, Mother. If I'd known that it'd be this way, I would have fought them from the beginning. I would have told them to leave us with our swollen seas. She got up and pulled the window open. The cool evening air tasted of lemons. You hear me, Martian pigs, she screamed. You're never going to get another minute of pleasure from me, do you hear? Because I'm through. I'm totally, totally through. I'll never act in period again as long as I live. Antonio pulled her away from the window, shook her by the shoulders. Jesus Christ, mother, I want them to know, she said. Tiny red veins swelled in her drunken eyes. Antonio heard footsteps and turned. Mato's round face was drawn into a stubborn glare. Antonio tried to laugh it off. Buena sera. She's drunk, that's all. Water droplets hit a white-hot skillet, and the little red gun appeared in Mato's hand. She already has all the worst habits of the period, he said. Nix, kamaya otto biteko nella obsegzalo, si largo si flexo, his mother cried. Antonio heard the 21st century Italian and tried to cover her mouth. The red gun buzzed and quivered in Mato's hand. The air around his mother crackled and frothed with a curious steam filled with points of radiance, like thousands of microscopic fireflies. Then she vanished, along with her clothes, her spectacles, and her shoes. I'm terribly sorry. Mato said. If it helps you stay in period, you can imagine that she died in a car crash, all right? Antonio could not speak. Fractured words scanned and tilted in his mind, but they were eclipsed by a great sun of rage and sadness that had nothing to do with language as it rolled across the sky of his mind. The gun turned until it pointed at him. The gun turned until it pointed at him. His lungs felt as small and narrow as string beans as he apologized to his mother's murderer. A few days later, he went back to the garage in the old trarno. He knocked, but no one was there. He sat down in the doorway and waited. Some Turanians passed and photographed him, but he did not care. Hours passed before Yusuf came, dragging his sack of masks behind him. I'm glad to see you're here, my friend. They killed my mother, Yusuf. I finally saw the sun. Antonio had arranged with Umberto to pick up the bomb early on Monday morning, and he came five minutes before the prescribed time. Umberto was there, sitting cross-legged in the cobblestones of the Ponte Vecchio. His small wooden bowl contained a few euro and assorted coins. Umberto got to his feet with a groan. Antonio followed him to his old kiosk and watched as the old man squeezed into a narrow space behind the wooden structure. The stones scraped Antonio's shoulders and hips as he followed. Open your bag! Antonio loosened the straps. Umberto reached into the ragged folds of his clothes and placed a compact metallic object inside. It has an adhesive back, Umberto said. Attach it to a wall. Then pull out the long pin, turn the front of the bomb half a turn, put the pin back, and run. At that moment, a footstep scraped on a cobblestone, and Antonio heard the hum of ventilation suits, so close that he could feel the airstream sweeping across his face. 
He stood so still he thought his heart might stop. Are those people back there? asked a Turanian voice. They're probably urinating, a common practice in the period. Come, take a look at these painted tiles in the wall. The men walked away. Antonia would have collapsed if the space had been wide enough. Next time they could have a subcam and detect the bomb, Umberto whispered. Get out of here. No, said Antonio. I need to know who gave this to you. Can't tell you. Dangerous information. That only made him want it more. But Umberto gave him a hard push in the street that ended the conversation. Antonio turned into the little plaza between the two wings of the museum, which was almost completely filled with Turanians, all of them searching for themselves in the gesture of a statue or the shape of a cornice. His stomach seemed to be burning or freezing. He couldn't tell which as he walked past the statues of Giotto, Galileo, Boccaccio, Dante. Poets and kings, scientists and queens, all of them would die today. Their very memories would die so that the Turanians could see the earth for what it was, a growing, living, fighting place where the shadow on the sundial never stood still. Before he went inside, Antonio took a moment to gaze at the statue of Dante Alighieri, a bitter, intelligent face almost alive under its marble skin. I'm sorry, Signor Alighieri, he said, but this time the inferno has camera flashes instead of fire pits, tourists instead of devils. It's worse than you imagined. In the Caravaggio room, he took one last look around at the paintings. Staring into the sweet eyes of Bacchus, he cursed the Turanians one last time. Damn them for making our greatest works into the bars of our prison, he thought. Damn them for seeing authenticity only in the past. And damn them for making me do this. He took the bomb from his bag and peeled the plastic off the back, revealing a sticky gum. Following Umberto's instructions, he pulled the pin, turned the face, and stuck the pin back in again. His heart crashing in his ears, he gently stuck the bomb to the wall next to the painting. Immediately he heard a hiss from behind him. He whirled and caught sight of a subcam in the corner of the room. He'd been seen. He dashed through the door, then followed the hallway past the other guards, putting one foot in front of the other, as if nothing had happened. The earliest guests were just arriving. He stepped around them as he descended the stairs, ignoring their questions. Halfway down the stairs, he saw Tipu with a subgun in his hand. The gun twisted. Antonio grabbed the Turanian by the arm and pushed him, his other grasping desperately for the Nero pistol. A second later, the Turanian's falling body was no more. Antonio leveled the pistol at Tipu's sagging form and fired. People screamed, and somewhere the heavy footsteps of security bots shook the ground. Antonio clawed his way through the crowd, pushing Tipu's paralyzed body onto its side and shoving his way out the door. Angry cries sounded behind him as he zigzagged across the plaza. A hand fell on his shoulder and he screamed, ready to fire the neuro pistol again. His eyes caught on a sheer purple robe, a tall figure. He stopped, totally confused. Yusuf? Yusuf stood silently, with his hands over his head. With a hiss and a flash of tiny fireflies, a glass bulb the size of a car appeared in front of him. Yusuf opened the door and stepped in, then pulled Antonio after him. 
The bulb rose high into the sky, even as Turanians pointed and shouted at them. But, but you're, you're... Antonio grabbed one of Yusuf's hands and saw long scars across his palms where the subspace key chips had been implanted. It's true, Yusuf said. I'm a Turanian. I've never been to Ashanti. Down below, every window of the Afizi building burst outwards, throwing sparkling slivers of glass high into the air as jets of pink plasma flowed out in pressurized streams. The building shuddered once, twice as iridescent flames crawled up and down the walls. Sections of the building slumped and melted, stone turning to white-hot cream. A moment later, the building shuddered again and exploded upwards in a blast of black dust, pink gas, and white smoke. It's a type of subspace bomb, Yosef explained. It creates a portal to the pressurized inner core of a gas giant planet in subspace. The portal closes after a minute to keep the destruction focused. Down below, however, the plasma was still flowing. Human bodies contracted into black skeletons in seconds, then crackled into dust. Streamers of twisting gas rose into the sky. They coiled around the glass globe, but did not damage it. I need some answers, Antonio said. Who gave that bomb to Umberto? Was it you? The smile on Yusuf's smooth face seemed so typically Turanian that Antonio could hardly believe he hadn't noticed before. No, I'm an exile without access to weapons. I've lived like you people for years because I spoke out against the museum cities. Then who? Who did it? Someone inside, very deep inside. A Turanian politician who opposes the museum cities but doesn't want to face the consequences of saying so in public. He believes we won't stop building museum cities until we come to see them as dangerous. Antonio watched the toxic clouds roll beneath, liquefying every building in their path. The twisting spirals of gas already covered whole areas of the city. The wind was picking up, blowing them to the east. Antonio strained his eyes, looking for the prison where Alona was being held. I'm worried about Alona, he said. She's there in the prison. Then the gas has already got her, Tony. Don't feel bad. She would have wanted this. No! Some things are worth dying for. Like what? Like your humanity. You know how we need to see that. What's that supposed to mean? I may be a dissident and an exile, but I'm still a Turanian. My people will remember this day as a nightmare for years, but eventually they'll see it differently. What just happened here is the most human thing I've ever seen. It's beautifully true to period. Yusuf was looking down at the destruction below with an odd expression, his eyes wide, his lips quivering, his dark fingers rubbing at his robes. He looked just like the tourists in the Uffizi as they studied the paintings there. He put a large hand on Antonio's shoulder and shook his head. Maybe this will satisfy us once and for all. And that was our story. I have no further commentary. As always, you can leave your comments on our blog at escapepod.org or on our forums at forum.escapeartists.info. Here's an audio promo for my favorite science fiction video podcast.
What is Stranger Things? Stranger Things is the world's first science fiction anthology series syndicated on the internet, shot and released in high definition for free. How is this possible? Welcome to the Cutting Edge, says Chris Miller, co-founder of PatioBooks.com. This is great online entertainment, says Michael R. Menengay, Farpoint Media. J.C. Hutchins, author of Seventh Son, says Earl Newton and his crew are out of their minds. Stranger Things is a mini-masterpiece playing right there on your screen. There are stranger things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Go to StrangerThings.tv and find out just how strange... Earl Newton does an amazing job writing and directing Stranger Things. It's an infrequent release, but the production values make it worth the wait. If you haven't checked it out yet, I strongly recommend it. Sins of the Mother is my favorite episode so far. So, three weeks ago we ran Matt Selznick's giant monster love story, Reggie vs. Kaiju Storm Chimera Wolf. The story got a very mixed response. We did have folks who loved it. I think there's a percentage of our audience for whom anything with giant monsters just hits a button. Icepick said, The story was great. I found myself thinking back to Forbidden Planet more than Japanese monster flicks, which is never a bad thing. A lot of other people responded that the story completely failed to engage them. Jenny said, For me, it's a good example of what happens when theme and plot and characters have no relation to each other. And we got a number of people who said this was their least favorite Escape Pod episode to date. There was a similar schism with Scott Sigler's reading. Some people, including hardcore fans of Scott Sigler's patio books, really loved his style. And others couldn't stand his voices, especially his female voice. Tim Prov said it reminded him of reading a story to a young kid. Quote, How you would always try to make big, funny voices for all the different characters. There's some other interesting stuff in the forum thread, notably a detailed discussion of what weapons you would really use to take down a giant monster. The quote of the week is a negative one this time from Wakela. Tip for the youngsters out there who are thinking about writing their own giant monster story. Put a giant monster in it. Thanks to everyone who commented. We know we're not going to hit a home run with every story, and it's not even our main goal to please every listener every week. We try different things, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Either way, we always appreciate your letting us know. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. If you don't try to change or sell our content, you're free to share it anywhere in the world, even in the United Kingdom. If you enjoyed this story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you'd like to help us support our authors, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and you can buy archive CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, who can be found at daikaiju.org. Our special closing song, Think for Yourself, is by permission of George Robb, whose music can be found at geologicrecords.net. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from British writer E.M. Forster, who said, We are willing enough to praise freedom when she is safely tucked away in the past and cannot be a nuisance. In the present, amidst dangers whose outcome we cannot foresee, we get nervous about her and admit censorship. We'll see you next week. Have fun. 
as the star-bellied sneeches butter the underside of their toast. All things being equal, the simplest answers worth most. Don't rely on Vishnu, Buddha, Ron Popeil, or the Holy Ghost. Just consider these words, and that ship of life you're sailing on might not smash into the coast. One, two. Is this thing on? 
Peter, if you're pissed at Paul 